want to carry on today with our sermon series on the Nicene Creed. And today as we come to the second article of the Creed, I want to read a few verses from John's Gospel, the first chapter. And uh, if you look on your, in your bulletin at pages 11 and 12, you'll notice that the, just the pure text is on the left-hand side. But on the right-hand side, this is actually kind of outlined a little bit. What is in the um, italics in the uh, brackets is not actually part of the scriptural text, so I won't, won't read that, but I'd like you to just notice it, and it might help you organize a little bit what John is saying. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he's made him known. This is the word of the Lord. And please, Lord, open us to what is beyond us as we make our way through this text. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. So as I said, I'm working through the Nicene Creed in this series. Who can tell me when the Nicene Creed was written? You scholars. Man, that is, you, that is bad. A.D., the year of our Lord, 325, the, Nicene, uh, the Council of Nicaea. And we are working through this creed unapologetically. Uh, you will meet Christians, many Christians today, sadly, who will say we don't need creeds, we shouldn't have creeds, we just need our Bible. But as I tried to say last week, there's a real problem with that because God, when he speaks to us, he commands us to really think about what he said and to ponder and repeat what he said and to summarize what he said and to memorize what he said and to teach what he has said. We are supposed to put God's words in our words. That's a biblical command to do that. And everyone who is a Christian does that. You either, as Carl Truman pointed out last week, you either do that, you either repeat and teach and speak forth what God has said, you either do that in a way that is public and that is open to biblical critique by other Christians, or you have your own private creed that may or may not be faithful to what the Bible actually says, but it is shielded from any accountability because you just kind of keep it to yourself. So I'm, 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 I'm talking through the Nicene Creed unapologetically, and I'm also doing this pastorally. I, I want us to take time with the creed and with what, where, where we get the creedal stuff from the Bible. I want to take time with that because, as I said, I want your joy to be full. I actually want to get your eyes 
off of yourselves. I want my eyes off of myself. And the beautiful thing about the creed, good creeds, following the scripture, is they take us way outside our little boxes. They take us into realities that are just so much deeper, so much higher, so much fuller, so much realer than our tiny lives. They really cannot but expand our joy. They, they must expand our joy because they just deal with things that are so much more expansive than what we currently think about. Now today, as we come to the second article of the creed, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father, and so on. We encounter something in this second article of the creed that shockingly upends the usual way that you and I think about God. Um, because when you and I think about God, generally, the question we have is, how is God relevant to my life? You know, people come to church often and can't even quite straighten that out. Like, fine, you know, I get kind of a warm glow in worship, but like, how is God relevant to my actual life? And that, that can often feel very hard to connect. But the creed does something that just upends that question entirely because the creed forces us to wrestle with a very different question. The real question is not how God is relevant to your life. The real question is how you and I can have the slightest relevance to God's life. That's, that's a very different question. How on earth do we have any relevance whatsoever to God? Because we need to be very clear about something. Before there was a cosmos, beyond all way beyond all created things, God has a life. He has an unbelievable life. We are told in Scripture that in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God the Father Almighty has a Son, and they have a life. And both the Creed and the Gospel of John and other parts of the Bible, they open windows on that relational life of God. And I just want to try to look through those windows a little bit today. I want to start by looking at God the Son, the Son at the Father's side. The Son at the Father's side. You see that at the very end of uh, the text we read, verse 18. The only God at the Father's side has made him known. I want to just take a moment with the idea of the Son at the Father's side. Because if we read Article 2 carefully, uh, there's an immediate puzzle that we have to kind of wrestle with here. We just confessed in Article 1. Who can recite Article 1 with me? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We just confessed in that article, that first article, that God is one. God is one. And as I tried to articulate last week, I know this is very, very mysterious, but it's important to think about it. When we say God is one, at least part of what we are saying is that God's essential being is undivided. God is one. He is one essential being. God is not multiple beings. God is not one being who has multiple parts. You know, so why analogies like, well, you know, it's kind of like an egg, the, you know, the shell, the yolk, the white. No, God is not like that. He's not composed of parts. God in his essential being, he is pure and perfect, but he's pure and perfect beyond all limits, beyond all boundaries, beyond any possibility of change. He is pure and perfect, and that never develops or becomes or changes or, or, or gets better or, or certainly never diminishes. God is just beyond all boundaries of time and space. He is, he's beyond all possibility of change, and he is perfect, and he is pure. He is one. There's no composition. We could say God is absolute. He is without a solution of things. God is one. 
Now, the reason why we don't really, can't really think of any good analogies is because there are no good analogies. God is unique in that way. And yet we come to Article 2, so we've just been talking about one God, I believe in one God, and then we hear these words that the Lord Jesus Christ is true God from true God. He is light from light, and that sure sounds like multiplicity, doesn't it? Sure sounds like we can now have multiples of God. If we have true God from true God, how do we not have multiples of God? And the same thing in John's Gospel. We are told the Word, speaking of the Son, God the Son, was with God. That surely sounds like we've kind of got parts. But if we look again, both the Bible, in this case John's Gospel, and the Creed very, very carefully clarify that what they're describing when they use words like true God from true God, or when John says the Word was with God, what they are describing, and we do need to be clear that this is beyond, ultimately beyond our language. I mean, we can we can say true things here, but we can never exhaustively explain this. What, what the Creed and, and, and John and the rest of the Bible are describing when they talk like this, they're describing something that is within, it's, I don't want to use a word like inside, as if there's something, you know, because that almost makes it sound like God has a limit. You can be outside. No, but within the perfect, changeless unity of God's being, true God is from true God. The word is with God, but it's within the perfect unity, the perfect oneness of God's being. In other words, when, when the creed says true God from true God, or John says the word was with God, it's not describing anything being added to God. There, you can't add anything to God because he's perfect and he's beyond limits. It is not multiplying God into a plurality. It is not dividing God up in any way. The word, you'll notice, the clarity of John's language in the opening verses, the word is with God, that's true, and the word what? Was God. So he's with God, but this is all happening within the oneness of God because the word is God. The word, the, the, the God, the Son, true God from true God, he is the fullness of who God is. He is identical in essence with the Father. There is no distinction of essence. Their essential being is exactly the same. So true God proceeds from true God within God's own godness, without changing God at all, without altering God at all. The way the creed puts it, he is of one substance with the Father, or as our exact version puts it, consubstantial, the same in substance with the Father. So John is trying to describe, the creed is trying to describe something here where without any development, Without any becoming, without any addition or any multiplying, there is within God's single being this going forth. Theologians describe this, the Bible describes this as an eternal act of begetting love and being begotten in love. The term that theologians use that the Bible does not use for this is there is this going forth of begetting love and being begotten in love within God's singular being. The term that theologians use for that, of course, is the Trinity, which one friend of mine has beautifully summarized the Trinity as God loving God in God. It is a heresy to say that these are three different centers of consciousness or somehow three different agents in any kind of way like you and I are multiple agents. They are the same in substance. That is orthodoxy. That is biblical truth. 
It is God loving God in God, the going forth of God within himself toward himself. That's the Trinity, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it is easy to get very lost in the metaphysics of this, which are really quite beyond our tiny little heads. But as one writer has very beautifully noted, and I love this description, everything that we know about God's triune life, we know not from a philosophical description of him, because the Bible does not give us a philosophical description of God. Like, you know, chapter one, part one, we're going to talk about, you know, God's essence and the persons and, you know, lay this out philosophically. The Bible doesn't give that to us. That's not how we know the Trinity. We know the Trinity biblically because we are allowed to overhear conversations between the Father and the Son. I just think that is a fantastic way of describing how we learn about the Trinity. We can wrestle philosophically and with the metaphysics of how God is this same in substance, and yet there's this going forth of relations, relations in God's life. We can wrestle with that, and that's all very important and good. But the actual way the Bible unfolds this to us is we're just find ourselves listening in, and the Father and Son are talking. We, we, we kind of get a, a glimpse into God's internal dialogue, if you, if you want to think of it that way. And in, this com- in these conversations we overhear, we hear not only God the Father speak, like that moment when the sky erupts and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's an example. Sometimes we hear the Son talking. The Psalm, like Psalm 110 does this, where you have Yahweh speaking to a Lord at his side and the Lord speaking back to Yahweh. It's very, very interesting. So you're kind of hearing the Father speak and the Son speak. And then you get in moments in these conversations, there are these references to I was trying to see if I've missed anything, but I think he is this silent member of the Godhead. The, the, we hear references to the Spirit. I don't, I, I could, maybe you guys can correct me. If there's any place in the Bible where we overhear the Spirit say something, but we're, we're, he, he's mentioned by the Father and the Son. So we have this internal dialogue of God, and we just kind of start overhearing it. And what we overhear as, as, as God is talking within himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we overhear is the purest liveliest love and delight beyond imagination. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father in the infinite, boundless, eternal, changeless unity and power and life of the Holy Spirit. There's this delightful imagery that God gives us here at the very end. The only God, He is the God, the one God who is at the Father's side who's in, as one English translation puts it, in the bosom of the Father. I, I, I love Fred Sanders' description of God's life. In himself, and without any reference to a created world or the plan of salvation, God is that being who exists as the triune love of the Father for the Son in the unity of the Spirit. The boundless life that God lives in himself at home, within the happy land of the Trinity, above all worlds. It is perfect. It is complete. It is inexhaustibly full and infinitely blessed. Amen and amen and amen. And, you know, if you try to put yourself imaginatively into what this must be like, the goodness of that life of God, the glory of God's life, the energy of God's life, brethren, it is literally beyond calculation. If you and I took all the powers, physical forces, 
spiritual powers, psychological powers that have ever moved in the history of the cosmos, all that energy and power, and he took all the goodness and the grandeur and the life and the blessedness that have ever been in this cosmos and have ever been enjoyed in all of time, and you put all of that together, it would not even register on the scale of God's triune life. Solomon says the highest heaven cannot contain you. You just can't even, you just, it's, it's, awesome God's life and yet as God is having all that glorious good goodness and blessedness in all that perfection needing absolutely nothing do you know one of the topics we overhear in these conversations between the Trinity and here I think this might even be a bigger mystery to me we've looked at the son at the father's side but notice what John says about the son as the father's light Because one of the topics we overhear as we are listening to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this exchange of boundless love, we hear this strange little phrase quite early in the Bible. Let there be. Let there be. This I do not understand at all. The Trinity, inexhaustibly full of life, the Trinity wants something to exist that is not the Trinity. That is bizarre. And that's where I, you know, like, what, what's the relevance? Why does God want something to exist other than he? His life is perfect. It is boundlessly perfect. There is nothing you can add to God's life. There is no reason whatsoever that God's thought should run beyond his being to create anything else. There's just no reason for it at all. But the Bible tells us that just as God, and I, I'm trying to find metaphors that work here, beloved, if you don't like them, fine, pick one that you like, but even as God, I'll put it this way, he, he s- sings forth the glory of his love in his everlasting life in himself. It's it just, I try to imagine God without any change or development, but in the perfect act that is his being he just is singing forth the radiant light of his love within himself as that god he is pleased it is his good pleasure there's no other reason for this at all it is god's good pleasure to make a kind of concert hall a concert hall where his radiant life his power his wisdom his love his joy all that god all these wonderful radiant attributes of God, a concert hall in which all of that light and radiance of God's glory can be refracted, if you like, in the music of just numberless instruments and numberless players. And so the word in, in God's, at God's side, the word in God's bosom, God the Son simply says these words, let there be light. And suddenly there it is, brothers and sisters, we know it today as the cosmos. We've never, I mean, it's a hall, it's a concert hall, that is so vast, the farthest ends of this cosmos to this day, to 2023, with all of our technological advances, we have never yet charted the farthest ends of it. And that's just talking about the visible parts, the parts you could actually physically see, let alone realm upon realm upon realm of spirit beings, which we know almost nothing about. A concert hall that just has myriads of chambers, great chambers, small chambers, filled, every one of them, with players and instruments Every one of those players and instruments having a unique nature to play the music of God's glory as no other creature can. And every one of them with this unique musical score that was composed by God himself and that plays out through time under his peerless conducting 
of this orchestra of all that he has made. Everyone with its own story as God conducts the music of his creation. It's just wild to think about. But you know, we actually overhear more. We don't merely overhear this strange, unexpected line, let there be, and there's the concert hall. We overhear, as God is speaking within himself, we overhear this other line, let us make man in our image. And it is God's pleasure that some of these players in this concert hall, some of them are going to play by instinct his glory, and some of them are going to be his children. They're going to be human beings made in his image, and they're going to be able to know him and to love him, maybe in some small way, as his own son in his triune life knows and loves him. And these children of his are going to know Again, they're not going to play by instinct. They're actually going to know what their father is doing with the music. And they're going to be participants in that music of God's glory filling the cosmos. These these children of God are going to build some new chambers in the concert hall. They're going to fashion some new instruments. They're going to play these new instruments. They're going to write new songs that actually, in a bizarre way, enlarge the music of God's creation. And they're even going to learn how to conduct certain parts of all of this. And so it is God's plan in creating this that from the end to the end of the cosmos, from the alpha to the omega of time, this hall of creation will just be ablaze with his glory, with his song, with his life, with his power, with his love. The psalmist says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Can you imagine that day when we finally stand in a restored creation and every creature, not just in the moment throughout every corner of the cosmos, the visible and the invisible, but all through history, they're all there. Can you imagine what a thunderous crescendo of praise the Lord our God we will hear and your little voice and instrument will be playing along? This is the plan of God. But if we come back to the text, something has changed. Because by the time John writes about the word, with God, was God, this word in whom he says God's life has come, as you would expect, this word who is, he says, giving light to everyone, there's darkness now, as John writes. And it's not darkness that's a natural phenomenon, the physical absence of light. It's darkness, John talks about the darkness, as a moral condition, as a spiritual condition. So something's gone very wrong. He talks about the world in verse 9. The light is coming into the world, but the world is not nature. It's not just creation, because that world is good. The world here is, 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 a, is kind of a dark thing. The world is humans in rebellion against God. There has been a rebellion. God's children, instead of playing his music, they have broken his instruments. They have deliberately warped his instruments. They've just torn up the scores, the musical scores that God has written, and they are, they've reassembled these scores in very chaotic ways. Some of them just refuse. We're not playing God's music. They just won't do it. We'll not live as he's made them to live. That's the scene as the word comes. And so this word, this light, as John also describes him, of God's eternal song, God is singing, speaking into this situation. He comes into this discordant, chaotic darkness, we're told in verse 14, as flesh. The word becomes flesh. He becomes one of the creatures, one of the instruments, one of the players, 
John also describes him as full God, tabernacled. That's what it, the actual word is there in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt. It's probably better translated tabernacled. He, he entered the tabernacle of full man. He's still full God. He's still that word that is God and, and is with God for all eternity, and yet now he is in flesh. He is in human nature. And in him, John says, we've heard the Father's music again perfectly. We've heard the pure music of what God intended for his creation, his glory in this one. You'll notice the language in verse 16, from the fullness of the word we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's the music of God. In the flesh, all of the glory of God's grace and truth as he intended it to be refracted through human life, the human mind, the human emotions, even the human body, it's all here. We've heard the music played perfectly and the glory of God has been refracted to us in this one without a shadow. Verse 14, we have seen the glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. We have seen God. We've seen him in the flesh. And verse 18, no one's ever seen God, but <laughs> this only God who is at the Father's side in the flesh, he has, the Greek word is exegeted him. He has opened him up. He has made him known. We've seen it. We've heard it. And this word, this son of God in the flesh, he will renew the music and he will enlarge the music until, as Paul tells us in Ephesians and elsewhere, until all things in heaven and earth are once again restored to perfect harmony. The way Paul puts it, God is going to put all things back together in him. The concert hall will be full once again of the harmony of God's music. That is what this word, has, as God from God, has gone forth to do. He will not return void. He will not return empty to the Father. And as John puts it, the darkness has not overcome it. And it will not overcome it until all of creation is once again filled with God's light. That is the mission of the word. And I'd like you to notice how the gospel and the creed, they're just tying all of this together. The word that God has spoken forth to save the world, God is singing life, speaking light, speaking a saving word into the darkness, the discordant darkness of the world, that word that has gone forth from God to save the world is not going to return empty. Why? Because it's the exact same word of the exact same God by whom this world came to be and continues to be. Like this very same word that is speaking salvation for the world is the very same word of the very same God that put the world there to start with and has held it in being until this very moment, and every creature in it until this very moment. The Hebrews says, God upholds all things by the word of his power. Well, that is this word. The word that saves the world is the word that made the world, and in fact, as John goes even further, and the creed goes even further, in fact, he is the same word who has spoken in the bosom of the Father from all eternity in the perfect love of the triune God. So for this word to fail in his mission God would have to cease being God. That's how John ties it all together. The saving word is the creating word, is the word that is God from God. And God's word, God's self-utterance, it just cannot fail in anything it sets out to do because God is God. 
Now, what is really sobering about the text, because all that I hope, I just hope, I hope you enjoy thinking about that as much as I have, but what is really sobering in the text is that this word, I mean, guys, this could be happening in this room right now, you know. This word, I mean, he's awesome. We're talking about God's life beyond all worlds, talking about God's love for himself and God making creation for himself and saving creation for himself. This word is in the world and no one's paying attention. The very world that exists because he spoke, they don't know him and they don't care. In fact, he comes to his own people who have all the scriptures bearing witness to this God and to the one he will send to save the world. He comes to his own. It's worse. They don't just ignore him. They don't want him. They just don't have any room for him. How is it possible that God's eternal creating, recreating word can be singing forth God's life and light and love in our very presence and it's foreign to us. We're oblivious to it. We're opposed to it. There's stuff on TikTok for crying out loud. But John says it's not that way among the children of God in verses 12 through 13. It's not true. That's not true of the children of God. There are some that God is called by his word out of darkness. He has made them alive to himself once again by the power of his word. And as John puts it in his letters later, these children of God walk in the light of the word in the world. The word of God brings the light of his truth, his grace, something of his being his love, and the children of God are walking in the world, but they're walking with the light on of what God has said. Their daily life in the world, it's like full of, suffused with the presence and the radiance of God's triune love. They know the Father through his word. They know the word himself. They know this by the Spirit. And that gives light. They're not, as John says, falling over the furniture because the lights are on. The light that the word gives. The light that has been exegeted, brought forth by the word. They hear God's music playing all the time and they're playing along and singing along. So what I want to ask you guys as we close is what does that look like? You're not among those in the world who don't know him. You're not among his own who just aren't interested in him. They don't want him. The word has come to you, made you children of God, birthed you to be God's children, and you're walking in the light. So what does it look like to walk in the light of the word in the world? I'm going to give you three quick things. Number one, it looks like gratitude. Because this really hit me in a way that it never has before this week. Do we actually notice that every single moment of our lives, and I mean every moment, like right now and every moment until for the rest of your existence in this life and the world to come, you and I are surrounded by things that the living God spoke into existence precisely so we can feel his love. Do you notice that? 
Do you guys notice just moment by moment in your life, I am surrounded right now by things that God spoke into being, not because God needed to at all, but simply because he wanted us as his creatures to feel, like feel, experience his love. Where it's not just theoretical. No, it's you're experiencing it in that which God has made. Do we notice that? Are we, God forbid, such entitled brats that we really think in our heart of hearts, well, of course, God should give me all of this, and it's annoying that God will not give me more. I'd like to think that brat has no place in Ben Miller's heart, but I've got to tell you, there are times when I find myself complaining about the way God is running my life, and I'm annoyed that God is not giving me more. Do we notice, do we give thanks for just all that God has spoken into existence for us. You know, people say the modern world is disenchanted. We've lost the magic of the spiritual and the, the transcendent. Can I just say to you that is such balderdash. The world is not disenchanted because the world is the Lord's and the world is full of God's presence and the world is full of God's love. Do you know what's disenchanted? Our hearts are disenchanted. We shut out the light of God's magic we shut out the love of God that is present and reaching for us in every single created thing. We refuse to see it. That's the disenchantment. And if our modern world has enabled us to somehow justify that philosophically in our own minds, then so much the worse for the modern world. There's nothing wrong with the world. It's as full of God's presence and purposes as it's ever been. And God's children just will not stand for that door. They shove that door open day by day and they say out to God like a musical refrain, Father, thank you. Thank you. Gratitude. I'll tell you something else it looks like to walk in the light of the word in the world. It looks like confidence. Because God's children in all their gratitude, they're certainly not naive. I mean, the darkness has been defeated, but it remains. You know, you can see it all around you. Much in the world is not at all what God spoke it to be. But the children of God remember this simple, simple thing. God has spoken again. <laughs> he has spoken the exact same word that created all things, but now he's spoken that exact same word in a saving key, in a liberating key, in a life-restoring mode. It's the same word, the same purpose of God. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters fill the sea. That was the word he spoke at creation, and he's still speaking that word, only now it's to restore. It's to break the power of sin. It's to liberate captives. It's to bring people out of themselves. God has said in creation, let there be, and now God has said in Christ the word, it shall be even more gloriously. Despite the worst sin can do, despite the worst Death and the devil can do. And walking in the light is believing the word more than what you see in the world. And saying, no, God has spoken, so we're confident. And that demands, that kind of confidence demands habits of worship. It is not an easy thing to keep our heads and our heads together in the light. God has spoken, so we're confident. Gratitude, confidence, and lastly, and please don't tune this out because this really does matter. Walking in the light of the word in the world looks like harmony. It looks like harmony. And I got to say with great sadness, this is where a lot of God's children simply refuse 
to play the music. Because we can raise our hands and express gratitude. We can raise our hands and express confidence. And then God says, now love your brother. Man. We want to keep the Sunday look. But we, and I mean we, we justify, we justify, beloved, it's not merely that we allow it, we justify grossly disharmonious attitudes, grossly disharmonious behaviors. We do this in our homes, we do this in our church life, and beyond church life. Why? Well, because, let's be honest, it boils down really to one or two very simple things. I don't like that person, or they've offended me. That's it. Some of you are dealing with this right now. I don't like that person. That's one reason we are disharmonious. Or they've offended me. And so we are disharmonious. And as God's children walking in the light of his word in the world, we really, really need to understand if you say you love God and you will not reconcile with your brother, the same apostle who wrote this gospel says you are a liar and you are walking in darkness. You need to take that extremely seriously. Because the word shines two lights on our relationships. And I find this hard, even as you do, to see by this light and to live by this light. The word shines two lights on our relationships. One is the light of creation, because he's a creating word. And you realize as you're looking at this person that you don't like, God spoke this person into being. This has so changed my way of thinking about people over the years to realize as I'm interacting, I had to buy a car on Friday, one of my least favorite things on the planet to do, and I'm sitting for hours in a dealership I hate, and this young dude is selling me this car, and I'm tempted to kind of be cynical because he's trying to sell me the car. And I sat for like five hours being closer to this dude than I ever wanted to be to this dude. A man made in God's image. That's what the light of the word tells me about this young man. And I needed to invest in him, no matter how grouchy I was about needing to buy a car. The word shines the light of creation on our relationship. You don't have the luxury of not liking people. I mean, you don't have to like them, but you have to love them. You've got to see them as the people, people that God spoke into being. I get people I don't like. God still made them with all their quirks and sins and faults and frailties and miserable, offensive things. He still made them. And the word also shines the light of the cross. He shines the light of the cross because the word went in the flesh to a cross for my sins. And you know, beloved, can I just say this to you? Can you hear this? Can I hear this? Jesus really does not want to hear from you or from me that showing grace and kindness to somebody is going to cost you. Jesus kind of doesn't want to hear that from you. Oh, no, I can't be gracious. I can't be kind because it costs me. Does it now? And the light of the cross shines. This is, this is hard. This is actually harder, I think, than gratitude, though it flows from gratitude. Harder than confidence, even. Any musician will tell you that harmony is really demanding. It's really hard. But, beloved, what God calls us to as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, as he himself is light, is, beloved, let us love one another because our triune God, as we have seen today, hopefully in a bit more glory than ever before, our triune God is love. He is love. Amen? Bless these things to our hearts and our lives, we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. In the name of the word, amen.